Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, today we're joined by my guest, Eric Toda. Eric is the former head of marketing and co-founder of Hill City, which was the first digital direct-to-consumer brand launched by Gap Inc. in 2018. He has spent his career building challenger brands from Facebook, Nike, Snapchat, and Airbnb, and now he advises challenger brands, including Stitch Fix. In addition to his advisory roles, he is also an opinion contributor at Ab Week on the topic of challenger brands. Eric, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I want to hear from you, you know, a little bit about your background. You have really extensive experience across retail and, and now advisor roles. So just a little bit about your journey. Sure. Um, my journey is an interesting one, and it's one that's relatively unconventional. It goes all the way back to when I was graduating college and applying to law school. So my entire vision for my future and my career was, was actually to be an attorney. And that was at the same time that digital companies were on the rise, like Facebook, Twitter, and some others. And my girlfriend at the time, she she suggested to me, she's like, you know what, you can be an attorney. I think you'll have a lot of fun, but I think you'll have a lot more fun, you know, joining a tech company. You know, there's people your age, everybody has a lot of fun. It's, it's good work. And so I drop out of law school and I joined Facebook. And at the time, you know, Facebook was relatively small. It was uh, smaller than MySpace. Yahoo, it's very well documented. Yahoo was actively trying to buy it. So it was Google. And I joined Facebook at a time where it was the first, you know, couple hundred employees. It was very young. It was very, it was very disruptive. And it was just a good place to learn. And from Facebook, after about five years there, I go on to, uh, to Nike to, to really pursue my passion in marketing and brand. And, and I joined, you know, one of the, what I believe is one of the, one of the greatest brand marketing organizations in the entire industry. And I joined the digital brand team there in which I learned an incredible amount about how to be a marketer, what is it, what it takes to be a marketer? How do you work with agencies, et cetera? And from Nike, I went back into tech to Snapchat to be one of their first business hires focused on go to market focused on product marketing and focused on focused on partnerships really just in uh, like a Swiss army knife of business which was fantastic and after a year there I, I go to Airbnb to to join another iconic marketing team led by Jonathan Mildenhall who was a great friend and mentor of mine and we did some of the most challenging and some of the most culture shifting work that I've ever seen from whether that was giving you know, free homes to refugees affected by the Trump travel ban, or whether that was creating a social first video in response to the 2016 election, saying that this is what we as Airbnb stand for, to then having that video run uh, during the Super Bowl was, was, again, like some of the most creative and best work I've ever had in my career. And from Airbnb, after uh, two and a half years there, I decided that I want another challenge. And that challenge was to go to a legacy brand and build something for them that they haven't done ever in their history. And that was building a digital first direct to consumer brand 
servicing men's athletic and lifestyle apparel. So I was obviously me being the demographic and me being from a tech and digital background, directing consumer was very natural to me. But what I found there was directing consumer isn't the only strategy you have to build. And if you want to disrupt the ecosystem today, you have to build a challenger brand. And this notion of a challenger brand is now a strategy that many other brands employ. And that's it definitely has some directing and super components in it, but it's about understanding the ecosystem, understanding the sea of sameness that many brands play in and having a point of view and being able to go back past that point of view to stand out and stick out with your purpose and values. And so I've taken all that experience and I've now you know, started to advise a bunch of companies. Stitch Fix is, is one of those companies, which is a personal styling service. And, you know, I'm just having a lot of fun. You know, uh, like I said before, my journey is unconventional, but it's unconventional in the best way because I never had a plan of where I wanted to go. I just wanted to continue to do amazing, you know, life-changing, career-changing work that, that challenged me to be more creative than the last job. Mm-hmm, certainly. And it sounds like you made some great picks. I mean, going to work for Facebook at a time when you said, I think you said it was smaller than MySpace at that time. Yes, yes. So you definitely uh-huh. went with the winner there. And um, that was just four years after Facebook was founded, which is just crazy to think about. It was a crazy time, you know, and I think that a lot of people, to be honest with you, a lot of people said, you know, maybe you shouldn't go to Facebook. Like, I think MySpace, you know, I think MySpace will be much bigger than it. And to be honest with you, I told my parents who were very against me going to Facebook, I get it. This is a big risk. This is a huge risk for me to go to Facebook, but as long as I could be here long enough to save up money to to buy my girlfriend a wedding ring, like I'm good. And if it does end up failing, like I'll go back to law school, I promise. <laughs> so obviously <laughs> it, it, it didn't fail and I ended up marrying my girlfriend. And so that's kind of my mindset going into Facebook. Absolutely. And she led you down the right path, it sounds like a little bit there. Um, yeah. And you said Airbnb was really interesting because you worked on the very well-known commercial that aired during the Super Bowl and that's a touchdown, I would say. Um, <laughs> what is your stand on on brands taking a stand? Because there's been a lot of controversy with with the Nike um, story and Starbucks and a lot of these brands that are in the news. Sure. My stance on brands taking a stand is that they shouldn't just find a cause and go after it because they think it's the right thing to do or because they're like, this is what the consumer wants. But instead, they need to look at their own values that they are structured within their company, whether it's about trust, whether it's about safety, whether it's about humanity, whatever that is, every company has values. All those things contribute to when it comes to taking a stand is making your values externally facing. That's all it is. You know, what we saw and what we at Airbnb really stood for is community. And we believed in humanity. And we believed in making sure that anywhere, any place, any person belonged anywhere. And what that means is if there are people that are being told that they don't belong somewhere, we will take a stand because that's not just what we believe our community wants, but instead that's what we as employees and that's what we as a company have structured into our value system. And all we're doing is saying, hey, we've always believed in this. And so because of that, we're going to take a stand right here and tell you no matter who you are, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your skin color is, we accept you. And that was the and that was the Super Bowl spot, and and I think what Nike's doing is is taking a stand in the most elegant of ways and saying we believe in every single person that wears our logo, and we're going to stand behind them. I think we live in a time right now where 
there is some distrust for mainstream media, but what you're seeing is there's a rise in trust for brands and, and people to align themselves to those brands. And so as brands, you have a greater obligation now to stand for what you believe in and stand for who your employees are, stand for who your consumers are in a way that can hopefully push culture and society forward. And I think if you could do that successfully, yeah, I think you could stand just a little bit taller, you know, that day that you put that work out there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And well said. And for Nike, when it comes to Nike specifically, you know, they broke away from Amazon as they're, you know, they're not selling through that channel anymore. Do you think we'll see a lot of other brands do that? Or do you think Nike is just so well positioned to take that stand? you know, that they have just more advantages than other brands. You know, I've, I've, I've given a lot of thought about this. I think a lot of brands use Amazon as a distribution, right? They have massive distribution, have a massive population of, of people going through their network to find items and goods that they need. That distribution, though, is controlled solely by Amazon. Now, if you're Nike and you look back on how Nike has always done it, Nike has always been so meticulous and so crafted on every bit of the experience from when you want that pair, like when you get that inspiration to get that pair of shoe down to when you try it on down to when you play. And by them going on Amazon, you lose a little bit of that storytelling. You lose a little bit of, the, of that control to control the entire experience. Very Apple in that way. Right. And I mm -hmm. think what Nike's doing is just saying, all right, the experience to us is more important than the distribution. Like we'll get the distribution. And I think they do it in a way now, that they have apps on your phone like sneakers and they have like the Nike app that they have that connection to the consumer. So they know where you're going to buy. But what they are trying to do now is saying like, we want every step of the experience with us to be premium, to be excellent, to be consistent with the brand. And that's something that I learned at Nike when I was there is that meticulous understanding that if I'm speaking to a potential customer, I want to make sure I'm presenting myself in the way that I believe is the most premium version of Nike every step of the way from when you buy it to when you're wearing it to when you, if you like, let's say you have an issue, I want to make sure that you're hitting up customer service and we're going to make sure that we solve that issue for you because I want to control that entire experience. And I think you will see more brands do that because I think that builds loyalty. Nike is obviously a big loyalty player and the brands that understand that branding isn't just commercials and advertisements, but it's an entire experience for the customer. Uh, the more brands understand that, the more that they will try to look to control that entire shopping experience. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And like you said, they have a meticulous control on the brand experience. And that's, I'm guessing, one of the key components to being a successful challenger brand. Are there other success factors when it, when it comes to challenger brands, given your experience at so many of them? No, totally. I think like, you know, the notion of a challenger brand is is not it's not new, you know, they used to call them disruptors or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think the thing is, like, I think the reason why people attach themselves to challenger brands is because a challenger brand now doesn't necessarily need to be a startup. And I think I proved this by, by creating Hill City for Gap Inc. It's that it could be incubated within a legacy brand. It's just about understanding if I'm a legacy brand or if I'm a startup, how do I look at the status quo and go right up against it? How do I look at how it's always been done and try to find the, oh, we've never done it like that. And that's what a challenger brand really takes is that you just understand on a greater and grander scale, 
there's a sea of sameness in every single industry. I swear to God, like there's a sea of sameness. There's like every brand looks exactly the same. They all market exactly the same and they all talk to the customer exactly the same. If that's the case in your respective industry, you have then an opportunity to say, let me take a counter approach to that. Let me take from another industry and try to try to cut through my own by doing something different, by being provocative, by standing for values, by making it easier for you to buy from me and making it easy for easier for you to exchange products or whatever. It's just about understanding that being a challenger brand, all you're doing is challenging the status quo. And I think that there's an evolution going on right now where people believe that direct-to-consumer brands, DTC brands, are were the first step towards challenger brands. I don't believe that's right. I think that direct-to-consumer brands are realizing that being a direct-to-consumer brand, you can't just stop there. Just because you own the relationship with the customer and you have that data and you own that shopping pattern doesn't necessarily mean you stop there. Being a challenger brand means you employ the mechanics of a direct-to-consumer brand, so you have that there but you also have a greater point of view of what your brand stands for. And then the DTC component is literally just that, it's a component. But you also have you know, personalization. You also have a good CRM strategy. You also have a great narrative that transcends your actual product itself. And so I look at challenger brands as not something that is, is necessarily fleeting, but it's something that you know, if I'm a startup and I have a great product, I'm looking at how I disrupt my own industry. If I'm a legacy brand, I'm saying to myself, I can't let this startup disrupt me. I need to disrupt myself. And so I'm going to incubate a challenger brand within that then we can take the innovation or the learnings that they can do, but my other brands under this umbrella are too slow to do. I think you're seeing that happen a lot with with legacy brands, but also startups like. Absolutely. And you said a few times the sea of sameness out there, which is definitely apparent to many consumers, I think. And you said CRM, personalization, brand storytelling, those are all components that are really important. Even if you have the same product, do you think there's been winners that just had a better CRM and story? Oh, totally. Totally. If I look at the general industry today, let's say... Hims, for example, the, the company Hims and Hers, and they sell pharmaceuticals and they're, they're a health company. What they've done that Pfizer couldn't do, that McKesson couldn't do, was they eliminated the stigma of saying you need help because you have health issues, because you have you know, dysfunctions that you need to be solved. And that became their value proposition. That became their, their challenger proposition against like, big, big pharmaceutical companies, the way they went to market was a direct-to-consumer, right? Like that was one aspect of it. Direct-to-consumer was one aspect of it. But the other aspect was, you know what hasn't happened in like 50 years that the pharmaceutical industry has started marketing? All they've done is put out commercials during golf tournaments on a Sunday (laughs) afternoon and said, that's our marketing strategy. What HIMSS did was say, you know what? There's a stigma here. There's a stigma of going to the doctor, saying you need help, and then getting prescribed and then going to the pharmacist and saying like, please help me. And you have to have so many interactions in which you're embarrassed. Tim said, no, you don't need to be embarrassed. You could text this doctor. They'll get you a prescription. The end, end of story. We'll mail it directly to you, super concealed, very discretionary, like it's yours. And they just won and relieved that stigma from hundreds of thousands of men that, that are suffering. But, but two, they're now propositioning themselves as, a new age health brand in which I'm going to trust them now because they 
they're not running TV ads, you know, during golf, golf matches, but instead they're talking directly to me and saying like, Hey, you know what? You got a problem. Just come to us. We got you. And I think that that sea of sameness in any industry is willing and able to be disrupted. Should you understand the key insight of why that industry is, is the same. I love that you had that example, just ready, ready to go, because that was a great one. I love <laughs> well, it. <laughs> the CMO is a very good friend of mine, Melissa Waters. I'm a huge fan of hers, but I think that that's one that a lot of people don't talk about. And, and I think that's one that is an, is an exceptional case study when it comes to disrupting, you know, a really big industry worth billions huge. of dollars that just doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting just on, on our side of the pond compared to Europe, you know, how we have marketing for pharmaceuticals and how it has always been sort of cut and dry and go ask your doctor if you need this um, versus having that conversation with the consumers. And it's crazy to me that like people were okay with that. You know, like I, and I think that's the issue, right? And I think that's where they got the insight. They're like, wait, there's so many steps. This is something that can be embarrassing for many people. And even though we know it's embarrassing, we still make you interact with a lot of people, which we could lose you at that point. So if you're okay with it, fine. But hims, hims and hers is like, no, 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 no. We can make this really easy. We can make this really easy, still legal, and still abides by, you know, by regulations. But we need to make it easier for you to not be embarrassed and to be more truthful and to be more self-aware to say, like, I need help. That's a great example. I will have to look more into them. And you have a unique perspective just because you have, you mentioned, you know, Hill City was incubated within a legacy brand. Are there unique challenges that you were able to gain insights on from that incubation period versus, you know, just a startup? Yeah, no, totally. I, you know, I think there's pros and cons, right? And I think like <clears throat> when I look at the pros of doing a direct-to-consumer challenger brand type company as a startup, VC-backed you and a few friends in a garage, you can do whatever you want. You literally can do whatever you want. But the number one thing that you are up against is, do you understand your customer? Do you understand how you're going to get them? But also, do you have the data, right? And how long will it take you to get the data to then build a CRM strategy or build a re- like a model of who your total addressable market is? And that takes a long time for direct consumer brands. Now, if you build it internally at a legacy brand, legacy brands have one thing that you know some have have been able to utilize, others still trying to unravel that that crazy ball of yarn. But it's the data they have hundred like years and decades of of data that they have on their customer, whether that's addresses, names, phone numbers, etc. And building a challenger brand within a legacy brand, you have access to that data, so you can either say, you know, as we go to market, we're either going to target at all these people that we believe is in our total addressable market, or we're going to see our challenger brand as a growth strategy for this legacy brand and not target these people at all. So now we're bringing new customers in to this legacy brand that they didn't have before. So that's two ways that I think it's really interesting. The other thing is like in a startup, most times than not, you're distracted by things like HR, or building a legal team, getting trademarks, all that stuff. If you mm-hmm. build a challenger brand within a legacy brand, all that's taken care of. Because right. you just you use their HR, you use their legal team, you use their trademarks team. And so then you can focus solely on the product and solely on the product experience. And I think 
building Hill City, like that's what I loved is that I was like, oh, I don't have to build an HR team. Wonderful. You know, but instead I I, I could focus on how do we make the best product possible that the customer we are talking to and we will talk to once and they will buy, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to doing a startup versus doing it within the legacy brand. But I, I look at so many benefits of doing it within the legacy brand. So what I'm hearing is there's no excuse. There's no excuse no. for legacy brands to not be innovating. Honestly, I'm a big believer in this. It's that as a legacy brand, you can buy innovation, which you know many big companies do. They see a smaller disruptive startup and they're like, all right, cool. We're buying you. We're going to ingest you and, and make sure all the goodness is like spread around everywhere. Or and I thought this was brilliant for Gap Inc. It's like Gap Inc. sits in the middle of San Francisco. And their backyard is Silicon Valley. So they have this wealth of talent that they can pull from and say, instead of us getting disrupted, getting freaked out, and then buying a smaller, nimbler startup, let's just build one internally. And I think more and more companies are starting to get, a, you know, are, are starting to get accustomed to this and saying, like, you know what, we're going to build it, we're going to incubate it, we're going to give them resources, you know, we're going to push them towards innovation. And the reality is, whether they survive or whether they fail, the learnings are going to be so invaluable for our other brands, the brands that we can't be as innovative with, but we can take those learnings and make them better and stronger. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I had another question. I like to ask this one because it seems like there's a little bit of a merging between brands and retailers. How do you differentiate between the two or, or do you not as much anymore? I don't as much anymore. If you're a retailer, you likely have your own brand. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think it's just about understanding that every touch point now, if you're a retailer, every touch point from the minute you walk into that store to the minute you check out to the minute you say goodbye, that's all brand. That's all brand. All those experiences that you just had walking in, trying stuff on or buying something and walking out, that's all brand. And if that, if that experience was amazing, your brand will resonate with that person and that consumer and they'll become loyal and they'll come back. If you're just a brand, you're not really focused on that. You're only focused on outwards opinion and outwards expectations. But I think the two are so intertwined that to me, branding or just marketing in general is no longer about what did we do outside of the walls of our stores? What did we do outside of the walls of our office? But instead, how is everything How's everything that we're doing literally down to like how we treat our employees or the workplace that they go into? How does this say our brand? And I think that brands and retailers are no longer separate. The entire thing is a branding exercise, in my opinion. I like that answer. And I I agree. Most retailers are all coming out with new private label brands, you know, in addition to the ones that they've had or just new in general. So it is one in the same I do want to talk a little bit about Stitch Fix. So okay. Stitch Fix, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's purely D2C still. No stores. Correct. No okay. stores. And there and you guys are not planning on I think I read some articles where people have been very public about it's not stores are not the route for us. I don't think Stitch Fix can can say never say never, right. but I will say the the core proposition of Stitch Fix isn't necessarily you walking into a store and pulling something off a rack. The core proposition is being able to scale something that, you know, when our parents and our grandparents were growing up was relatively a luxury and that's personal styling. 
you know, where someone would say, I know you, I, you know, like some, someone walk up to you, Julia, and say, I know you, Julia, this is what you do. Here's how you do it. And so because of that, here's your taste. And I put out this outfit for you. Now that used to be only available to a select few, right? Like a personal shopper. What mm-hmm. Stitch Fix's main proposition is, is that experience right there. You can get that personal style literally anytime you want, no matter what time of the day. And the more you interact with them, the more they understand you. So I, I think like you can have that in a store, sure. But I think with everybody's busy lives and why Stitch Fix does exist is that not everybody has time to go into a store, but everybody is on their phones. Everybody can fill out a survey. Everybody can give feedback. And I think that's what makes Stitch Fix such a great proposition is because it's distributed and scalable. Mm-hmm. And scalable being the keyword. And I've always wondered this. So I wanted to ask, is like, you know, Stitch Fix stylists are hand selecting clothing, but is this process 100% manual or does the back end take the historical data from that customer to suggest things to the stylist to suggest to the customer? Yeah, I, you know, I look at the secret sauce behind Stitch Fix is a combination of both the art of humanity. So making sure that you have like a person literally styling you, but the sophistication of technology. And, and I think that that comes with, we, Citrix has an amazing array of, of data points that suggest trends, colors, palettes, taste levels from mm-hmm. all over, from all over that then the stylist then says, oh, this is what's happening right now. Here's what's likely to happen two months from now. So I want to make sure Julia is ahead of that curve. I'm going to suggest to her pieces that, you know, you know, kind of, kind of push the envelope and maybe she'll like that. And let's say you do like that, right? That's a data point to say this style works and maybe you should suggest it to other people that look and feel like Julia. It is that beautiful blend of art and science versus, you know, a lot of people do think that it's just a computer like outputting styles. No, it's the best example I've seen so far of humans that are empowered, you know, by technology and data. And that's amazing. Yeah. That's a great answer to know there's actually a person looking at each customer of Stitch Fix is really cool. Oh yeah, for sure. And I I think that the more that people understand that it's not just, you can't have one or the other, you know, and having both is such an incredible proposition to have. And and, and I think more people should employ that strategy. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And how would you say this is different? Is the human element the big differentiator when it comes to like Amazon wardrobe or any of the other competitors? I think so. You know, I think that, I think it's, it's really easy to plug your name into an algorithm. It's super, super easy. But like I said, like, I think that by doing that, you create a sea of sameness, even in your own look and feel, even in your own style. Like how would you feel if you walk down the street and your neighbor and, and the, their neighbor, et cetera, all wore the same shirt as you because they clicked a bunch of boxes? You probably wouldn't feel that great. You probably feel <laughs> as if the person that, that said that to you was like, yeah, 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 yeah. This is what people in your neighborhood like. So I'm just like, Am I in a Black Mirror shirt. episode? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of strange, <laughs> right? But I think like if you have that human element, that judgment is like, no, that's a terrible idea. Like We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I think that I think that human element is such a powerful one that has to be in every strategy now, because if you rely on the computer alone, you're going to get that sameness that, you know, I dread. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm literally cringing. Like that sounds (laughs) right. So the computer would be optimizing. And with that would come a lot of sameness, but the human element really makes a difference. And that's a good example. Um, What do you think about personalization just in general? Do you, 
foresee the future. We're going to each have different website homepages when we land on them. And to what extent do you think personalization will be incorporated in our everyday lives? Yeah, I mean, I think personalization is inevitable, but I think personalization is also, let's say 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you used to walk into a bar and it's your favorite bar, it's your local bar, the bartender says hi, Julia, and passes you your favorite drink without you ever saying it. And the jukebox plays you know, your favorite song because the bartender's like, hey, play your song. That's the level of personalization that has always existed. We lost that level of personalization because of so many reasons, mostly choice and urban sprawl. But I think that level of personalization has the word personal in it. And that personal in it is that connection between you and another person to that understanding. And I think that if we root personalization in that person and personal, we can do it in a way that isn't weird. We could do it in a way that isn't creepy. We do it in a way that's useful and more natural. I don't think we'll get to a point in which everything is, is highly personalized for you because I think that there's a lot of data privacy acts now going out that, that mm-hmm. will likely hinder that. But I also think that there's got to be a point for us to say, okay, that's enough. You know, it's like, I don't want you to know literally every nook and cranny about me to say, right. like, this is why you should buy this toothpaste. You know, I like the notion of discovery and trying different things. Um, so it's great that you can likely predict what I'm going to get. But I like discovery because discovery and curiosity is what makes us human. And and I think that we can't lose that human or personal within personalization. I would agree. I think there's also some data challenges when it comes to an extreme level of personalization. But um, in the future, surely those will be solved. Well, the last thing I wanted to bring up is uh, cannabis retail. Okay. A lot of buzz about it. I know you're in California one of the 11 states that have legalized recreational marijuana. So from your unique perspective, what are some industry trends that have emerged or what do you anticipate for the future of retail in terms of cannabis? Cannabis is an incredible industry and one that has been stigmatized uh, for a number of different unjust and somewhat racially biased reasons. And I think with the rise of legalization of cannabis in many different states, uh, you're starting to see more entrepreneurship when it comes to the growers, when it comes to the retailers. But you're also seeing something that literally has no no boundaries right now. I think that it's such a like part of my part of my pun, but a budding industry. Yes, and, it is. <laughs> and, and what we're finding is that. When these entrepreneurs decide to go in the cannabis industry, they need to get out in the market. However, while it's legal, there are still so many regulations of how you can market, how you can advertise, how you can like where you can advertise, and how you can use data and, and targeting that oftentimes, again, they're just doing what they've seen other brands do, so therefore causing like this sea of sameness. Now, I am very fortunate to be an advisor to a company called Philo which is a digital cannabis agency that helps cannabis retailers and brands understand regulatory issues Mm, and regulatory bounds. And so what we offer is services to say, 
okay, great. You want to speak to this customer. Here's how you can do it legally. And here's how you can do it creatively. Those two things, those two words never existed literally in the cannabis industry, like legally and creatively. And I think, (laughs) and honestly, I think that is, that is such an opportunity for a lot of people to get into. And so I've been very fortunate for for myself to work with Chad Bronstein, the CEO of, of Philo to help him understand how do you do things creatively, but also within the legal bounds. And I think you're going to start seeing more and more people focused on the health aspect. You're going to see more and more people focused on the recreational aspect, like like the wine industry, for example, or 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 the uh, alcohol and beverage industry as a whole. Like they focus on the lifestyle aspect, and I think focusing on that lifestyle aspect is going to serve cannabis to a new consumer, uh, but in a way that isn't stigmatized, that isn't you know from another generation that you thought cannabis was bad, but rather we're you know, you're going to see a lot of brands show the health benefits of cannabis, which are a lot of them. And it looks like you came full circle, see, because you wanted to get into law and you're not necessarily in law right now, but you're advising for a company uh, that deals with that. So, you know, it is funny. full circle. Well, the funny thing is, it's like, you know, I, I think you could tell from the way I approach marketing, the way I approach branding, it pushes the envelope quite a bit. So I actually see lawyers quite a bit throughout my journey. You know, to, t- to tell me, Eric, this is this is illegal, or or Eric, this is uh, this is not compliant with some grounds. But you know, honestly, like to be able to do that versus just doing the status quo, I would take that any day of the week. Absolutely, and Philo sounds really cool. Is that almost a collective? So they work on behalf of many retailers. Correct. Yeah. So they, it's like think of it like a creative agency you as a brand or a retailer and say, Hey, I need some branding work. I need some help with go to market. I need some help with my, my media strategy. You know, is there someone that can help me? Philo steps in and says, we're full service. Like we could do this. Eric, thank you so much for all of your insights from DTC brands to innovation, to the cannabis retail market. It was really fun talking with you. No, thanks for having me. This was a blast. You've been listening to rethink retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.